Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. It's Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm Lorenzo Marasso. guest today is Italian fortepianist Costantino Mastro Primiano, who has specialized in keyboard music of the 19th century, a relatively unusual field for historical pianists. He has focused on composers such as Muzio Clementi, Johann Hummel, Jan Ladislav Dusek, Johann Baptist Kramer, Friedrich Karbrenner, Karl Czerny, Ignaz Moscheles, and Ferdinand Ries. Many of his performances have been informed by his own research into historical instruments and playing techniques. Costantino Mastroprimiano started playing the piano in the conservatory in his hometown Foggia in Italy and then attended the Accademia Musicale Chigiana in Siena to further his studies in piano and chamber music. Then he launched into studies of period piano treaties and in the process he rediscovered not only works by the above-named composers and other composers but also unpublished transcription of orchestral music by Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven and he served on the committee that produced the complete edition of Clementi's works. Costantino has extensively performed in Italy and all over Europe. In 1996, at the San Gimignano Festival in Tuscany, he gave what was probably the first performance in history of Bach's Goldberg Variations on a forte piano. Costantino has recorded the complete cycles of keyboard music of Clementi and Hummel, and has also recorded the music of Chopin and Alcan on period instruments. During this hour, we'll have a chance to discuss with Costantino Mastro Primiano on topics such as dedicating one's career to an instrument like the forte piano, and we'll also discuss of historical interpretation informed by the reading of historical manuals on playing techniques and the importance of details to be read on a musical scores and many other topics. We'll also have the chance to hear and perform works by Beethoven, Haydn, and an exhilarating performance of the transcription of Mozart's Piano Concerto K466 by Johann Hommel.
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle and I'm your host Lorenzo Morasso. My guest today is fortepianist Costantino Mastropribiano. And you have just listened to the third and final movement of the sonata in C minor, opus 13, also known as Pathétique, by Ludwig van Beethoven, performed by fortepianist Costantino Mastropribiano. Welcome, Costantino. First, I would like to thank you for participating in my radio program. I'm very happy that we're connecting in this way, as I always appreciated your style of playing, which I found very respectful of the details of a musical composition. Well, this makes me very happy, not for anything else, and it may seem a generic observation, but, first of all, it is I who want to thank you for having caught the importance of details when referring to historical instruments. And then above all it gives me a confirmation of the fact that if a person, whether a student or a scholar of whichever level he or she is at, should eventually decide to approach this type of instruments, and therefore gets to know historical instruments in general, in this case the fortepiano or the historical piano, however you want to call it, it is because this kind of studies requires a thorough analysis of the details of the historical performance. On the contrary today we are very much used to listening to a piece of music and deciding whether we like it or dislike it using a purely aesthetic approach which comes from listening prior to having analyzed the score. And this is probably due to how music is being consumed and listened to today through platforms like YouTube and many other digital platforms. In the old days, and I always stress this aspect to my students, and in particular at the time of Mozart, Beethoven, or Chopin, or any of the most famous but also the lesser known musicians, when those musicians wrote a piece of music and published it, whoever bought a copy of the piece, didn't have a chance to listen to it beforehand and judge whether they liked it or not, but could only judge the quality of the piece by reading this score. This is similar to what we do today, when we go to a bookstore, and we pick up a book, and we perceive from the book, and by reading a bit of it on the spot, that the style of writing of that particular writer, convinces us to buy the book, or not, regardless of whether we had a chance, to hear the book read in an audiobook, or having already watched the movie his script is based on the book itself. And this, to return to the main topic of details, was precisely due to the number of details that the musician, especially those from a certain period onwards, wrote on the score, so the detail is the graphic counterpart of what it once was known as performance practice. That is to say, if we take a piece by Bacher Frescobaldi, we rarely find very few signs and details of the score, except in very exceptional cases, because there was a direct apprenticeship and teaching on how those signs had to be identified on the score, and what they meant in musical terms. When the diffusion of music went beyond, in a certain sense, the workshop and there were not only Bach students in Leipzig or Frescobaldi's students in Rome, who had learned directly from their masters, and at the same time publishing houses started to diffuse printed music more largely, the musician, in order to communicate the music's meaning indirectly, 
was then forced to insert on the score signs that could give clues on how to correctly identify the meaning of certain musical passages and in relation to a specific performance. In this light, a performance on an historical instrument, or on a copy of an historical instrument or any historical keyboard, whether it is a copy or an original, a performance that doesn't take into account these implicit or explicit details, and interpretation markings of the score, is, in my opinion, a form of hypocrisy, and it is a bit like saying, I am wearing a crown therefore I am the king of France. It is not enough to wear a crown, to be identified as the king of a nation, nor a king of a nation, is such only because is wearing a crown. So it is really necessary to go through precise instruction and education, when it comes to historical instruments, but, above all, an understanding that what needs to be learned, is a different way of reading a score which then also needs to be analyzed from a social and cultural point of view of the times when it was produced. We do not realize this aspect, but at the time of Mozart and Beethoven there we know public concerts, and no sonata by Beethoven, was ever heard by Beethoven in a concert, which seems like an heresy, nor a sonata by Mozart or a sonata by Haydn, was ever performed in a concert during the life of Haydn. It seems sacrilegious, because today no pianist would not dream of inserting in their recital program a sonata by Mozart or Beethoven or Schubert, or even any piece from the repertoire up to 1820 and 1830, which is also a large part of the pre-romantic repertoire when instead the novelty of that later period was precisely the diffusion of the music through public performances, but it was not the public performance that gave value to a piece of music. It was the analysis and the understanding of those common aspects and details that conveyed the meaning of a piece of music. Today we are very much conditioned in our judgment of a piece of music by prior listening and by someone's interpretation, and not by examining the score itself. This process is very much similar to evaluating a novel by watching the movie whose script is based on the novel or watch the series on Netflix, rather than reading the novel itself. Obviously by reading the novel we will be able to grasp many more details than by hearing the reading of the novel or watching the movie based on the novel, because no movie can entirely convey all of the details that instead the written word can. Similarly the annotations on a musical score are what is needed to correctly understand the creator's thoughts. I would like to take a quick step back and ask you how you have arrived at the fortepiano and what type of training you have had. Absolutely. I started with learning the piano, like everyone else in my generation. I was born in 1964, so let's say that I had my training around the 80s, when our idols in Italy were Maurizio Pollini and Martha Argerich, who are still in some ways idolized today. These were the models, how to say, the bread with which we nourished ourselves, and how pianism in a certain sense was perceived and taught. My turning point from that was probably given by the fact that I have always been passionate about history and the history of teaching piano. But this is a fact that apparently may have no fundamental relevance in determining a choice. But at that time I had begun reading what were the first treatises and methods on piano teaching that were being republished. I remember that in Italy there were none of those older methods published. 
The Kersey editions, which at the time, with Ricordi, were the ones that circulated the most in Italy, had published a translation, which later turned out to be certainly not excellent, but at the time it was the only one in Italian, of the method written by Carl's Philip Emanuel Bach. I remembered that to buy other methods I had to purchase them from Switzerland, where Minkov Publishing House was located, who at the time had republished some of these methods, in anesthetic copies, and I recall paying a lot of money for them, almost $150 for Ignaz Michel's method, a price that even today few students would pay to buy the same book. So, my approach to instruments such as the fortepiano was initially born from a purely historical curiosity. When then, after reading some of these treatises, I became curious to understand, in practice, the meaning of certain written rules or certain habits of playing in a certain way. Then at a certain point I began to try to find historical instruments on which I could test these things, and finding those instruments was quite difficult in the 80s in Italy whether they were of the times of Haydn or Mozart, or in any case older instruments, than the ones that we commonly used in our daily practice. So I began to understand quite macroscopic things, first of all the fact that the keyboard of a fortepiano is lighter than that of a piano, and that the mechanics of the instruments were different. Things of first observation. And then what began to come naturally to me, was to hear certain sounds written for that type of instrument. So certain music by Mozart started to sound more natural to me when played on a fortepiano than on the piano. This led to questioning certain pianistic habits, for example, that of playing the left hand softer than the right hand, of not accentuating certain figures, of always singing the melody, and of always playing legato. All this was not wrong, but I understood that it was derived from a purely aesthetic idea, and was not in conformity with the language of the instruments of the time, that had a different way of creating these sounds. And then from that point on I started to get involved seriously. Then it happened, that I started buying my first historical instrument and I started spending a lot of time playing it, spending hours and hours on this new instrument. And then I bought a second instrument. Then I sold the first instrument, to buy myself another instrument, and then this became a habit in the beautiful sense of the term, and then above all it became curiosity, because this way of studying never ends. Today I realize that in some passages, that I have recorded in the past, I discover or deduce details that are on the score, that I might not have noticed ten years before and that give a meaning if not different, certainly more pointed in a different direction of understanding. Then I began, doing a wonderful thing which is to notice, what are the statistics in the same musician, of certain types of writing, of certain types of modulation, of certain types of decoration. I began to think and distinguish, in the music, the most important notes from the less important ones. Then I began to understand that music is truly a language, but not like it is taught in school, where it is said that music is a universal language, because we can all hear it therefore we are all emotionally moved. No, music is really language, because it is subjected to syntactics as well as verbal and rhetorical rules that mean that, just as there are main phrases, there are the subordinates, 
the interjections, the exclamations, the harsh sounds, the alliterations, etc. So there is a formulation of the musical text, and everything was done by virtue of the very quality of the mechanics, and the state of evolution of the instruments in which the music itself was being created. So this process was like stepping into some kind of vortex, that still continues to this day. I always tell my students, when they ask me, how I came to this or that conclusion, and then I change my mind. I replied that I have thought about it, and I have found a better explanation. So the important thing is not to reach a conclusion, that fits one's opinion, but to try and understand why the author did a certain thing in a certain piece. Because the important thing is to leave personal opinions out of the game, which is part of the modern interpretation, and set aside the interpreter's self-referentiality, that is taken over in the analysis of the music. But this is social history. It is not a fault that Chopin wrote music for himself to perform, or for those who wanted to take lessons with him directly. Chopin could not have imagined that today, fortunately. His music is played all over the world. But as such there has been a loss of direct information. In Chopin's time, one interested in his music would have gone to Paris, if he or she could have afforded it, to speak directly with Chopin regarding his music. Unfortunately, this is no longer possible today. So our task is to reconstruct Chopin's thinking from the documents, the letters, the details found on the scores, to identify what Chopin's way of interpreting was, without classifying it as good or bad, but as conforming to the author's intentions. I always say, that we will never know if today, we, citizens of the year 2021, would appreciate Chopin's playing. We cannot know for sure, and maybe if we did, we may not like it because it may sound far from our taste. After all, even when we listen to certain late 19th century recordings we remain at loss, because the aesthetic standards were different at the time and far from ours. For example, how singers sang, and how they used to emit their voice. So this type of work of historical reconstruction, turns into a continuous search for what many of my colleagues define as authenticity. Which is a word, that I feel a bit heavy, because authentic is generally opposed to false. But to know what is authentic, and what is false one must know what is true, and in music true do not exist, because musicians often changes their minds and change what they wrote, because they feel that maybe the piece does not work entirely. So I argue, that there is a need to find consistency between what the written text is, the author's thought and our reproduction on the instrument. After all, the interpreter, which is a linguistic concept, does nothing but translate into a language known to the listener, concepts that he understands, but cannot mislead from the meaning with respect to their original language. As an example, if I don't speak Circassian and I go to a conference in Circassia, and if an expression, in Circassian, means you are very rude, and I as an interpreter argue that instead it means you don't feel too good today, I am in fact claiming a falsehood. Instead, we must try to translate things, that may even seem strange, but which belong to the language of a particular musician, and to the canons of culture and society in which the musician lived. Di cultura e di società che il compositore metteva sulla carta.
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm your host, Lorenzo Morasso. My guest today is fortepianist Costantino Mastro Primiano, and you have just listened to the Andante and Variations in F minor by Joseph Haydn, performed by fortepianist Costantino Mastro Primiano. In this performance that we have just listened to of the Andante and Variations in F minor, by Haydn, it seems to me that you interpret this piece with a lot of freedom, both dynamically, but most of all, uh, it seems to be rhythmically, uh, giving it an almost improvised character. In my probably rigid and perhaps modern conception of Haydn and Mozart, I've always associated their music with a rather regular rhythm. The problem is that, in musical interpretation, in particular in the modern way of performing music, in this case piano music, a confusion has been created between what means to play bar by bar, and playing with tactus and the concept of tactus is a concept of regularity of accentuations, but not of continuous regularity. I always argue, with my students, that if the time indicated, in a piece of music, is 4-4, this is as if it was indicated, that each room in a building, should have a floor area of 40 square meters, but this information is not enough to dictate, how to arrange the furniture, or how to arrange the pictures on the walls. In the same case, when we think of a bridge, we do not describe it by saying, that there is a pylon every 10 meters, but we describe the shape of the arch, and the style of the bridge itself which can be similar to the Brooklyn Bridge in New York, or that of Giovanni da Verrazzano, or can be more similar to an Art Deco bridge, as well as to a bridge in ancient Rome. So the arches of a bridge, or the arrangement of a square footage within a space, or the musical bars, do not define the style of the space, or the music contained in each bar. More simply it is like saying, that a bedroom measuring an area of 40 square meters does not describe the aesthetics, or the style of that room and certainly a bedroom, where I go to sleep, surely it will not be furnished like a dining room. What are the indices that allow us to recognize all these details? There are many, and they include tonality, the theory of effects, as in the case of Haydn. The case of Haydn's and Dante and variations in F minor, a very particular case because it is an Andante and variations in which it is not clear where the theme is, and where the variation is. Haydn himself had many but confused ideas also about the name of the piece. He sometimes called it a little sonata, other times a divertimento, other times capriccio. What Haydn intended to communicate, however, was the idea of an improvised piece that was born as the piece progressed. Therefore in this piece, which we have just heard, maintaining a regular rhythmic subdivision would have gone against both the tonalities used by Haydn, and the rhythmic figurations and above all, what was the genesis and the origin of the piece, as it was written by Haydn, following the loss of a loved friend. Consequently, associating the idea of pain and loss with a rhythmic regularity, would have been linguistically a contradiction. A grieving person does not always maintain the same precise state of mind, but fluctuates between the pain of the loss of the loved person, characterized by the use of the minor tonality and the memory, an elegic moment, characterized by the use of the major tonality. 
So Haydn changes continuously and moves in a continuous variation between major and minor, between memory of the past and a sense of loss in the present. So this piece by Haydn is a verbal and narrative variation in the sense that he structures his speech precisely between these two contrasting concepts, loss, the minor key section, and nostalgia, the major part, and then he plays with these two elements, between the painful and the elegiac, and links them differently into one another, and one with respect to the other. This piece is truly a game of verbal rhetoric and the product of a great master. And in this Haydn I think was the greatest exponent of musical rhetoric. He always tells a story and in the way he does it, I must say, and frankly I understood this aspect late in my studies of this repertoire and of historic instruments. Haydn certainly does it in a much more complete way than the verbal language that both Mozart and Beethoven use. Mozart because he can't hold back in his diversions and Beethoven because he rightly paused to go to other modes of expression. But basically all three of these authors have a linguistic and verbal background that derives from their training. So, Haydn's Andante and variations in F minor is, in my opinion, the piece par excellence, in which the variation is the most appropriate musical form to tell of two distinct attitudes towards the same event. But it is a very special case, I must say. I think that even historical instruments, be it the fortepiano or historical piano, as well as other historical instruments, would not allow a modern regularity of the rhythmic division. It would have been very boring to listen to. It must also be said that these authors came from a culture of diversity in what in music distinguished between long notes, short notes, good notes and bad notes. In practice, there was an almost biological diversity that each sound must have, that gives a precise meaning to each sound. So it was not enough just to press a key, and the resulting sound would be fine. But that sound has to have its own expressive function, and the very sense of expression and communication of a meaning at that precise moment of the composition itself. Quel segno avesse in quel preciso momento punto della composizione stessa. I would like to briefly talk about your repertoire, most of all of the fact that you discovered and recorded the transcriptions by Hummel of some of the concertos for piano by Mozart. I never recorded them, but I have played them in public, and this brought me great satisfaction. From what I understood later on, I was among the first to play these transcriptions with the original instruments. I'll tell you this short anecdote. It was the mid-80s, perhaps 1984 or 1985, and I loved spending time browsing through these kinds of authors in the paper archive of the Santa Cecilia Library in Rome. At the time in the libraries there were the coupons that had to be typed in with Olivetti typewriters, in order to request a book or a score, and I remember that in Santa Cecilia in the catalog, I found the transcriptions of Mozart's concertos, transcribed by Hummel. 
which I found strange and interesting at the same time. And after borrowing them, I photocopied them all. There weren't that many, maybe four or five. And I began to see, first of all, the way the instrumentation was treated by Hummel, but above all in the second movements all the embellishments, which to us might seem like a Biedermeier edition, but which Hummel added on the recommendation of Mozart, or so set the introductions to those scores. And I must tell the truth that this was a good lesson from that point of view. And then above all as soon as I found some colleagues who had the same curiosity as me for those transcriptions, we performed them a lot. Let's say that there was a moment when Mozart's Piano Concerto K-466, transcribed by Hummel, or the K-467, transcribed by Kramer, or even Mozart's symphonies transcribed by Clementi, for the same type of ensemble. This music became a little bit like our daily bread. And I must say thanks to these transcriptions which taught me a lot about how the fortepiano was treated among the instruments involved. Il fortepiano fosse parallelo alle arcate o ai fiati degli strumenti che erano coinvolti.
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm your host, Lorenzo Morasso. My guest today is fortepianist Costantino Mastro Primiano. And you have just listened to part of the first movement of the Piano Concerto K466 by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in the chamber transcription by Johann Hummel, performed by flutist Fiorella Andriani, violinist Liana Mosca, cellist Marco Testori, and fortepianist Costantino Mastro Primiano. Costantino, I would like to thank you for this wonderful conversation we had during this hour that brought me much joy in learning about yourself, uh, your experience and your knowledge. I truly hope we will soon meet perhaps in Italy or in the US. Thank you. Thank you for offering me this space. Because it is extremely pleasant to have a conversation and communicate. After all, this is what we live for, to communicate, which doesn't mean appearance, but a way to confront and also express concepts with others, not just for themselves. Thank you so much. Thank you, Costantino. I hope you have enjoyed meeting my guest, fortepianist Costantino Mastro Primiano, and enjoyed getting to know him and listening to some of his recordings. For now, I leave you with one more piece titled Monferrina No. 6, Opus 49 by Muzio Clementi, performed here on KBFG Seattle by fortepianist Costantino Mastro Primiano. And I look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Dress Rehearsal here on KBFG Seattle. The voice of Constantino Master Primiano is kindly dubbed by myself. My name is Henry, and I am an artificial intelligence product of the IBM Watson text-to-speech. I think I did a great job, although I still sound way too serious. Have a nice day everyone.